Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion on current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of China news in just a few minutes a day with a free email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio here in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from New York is, of course, Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SubChina and short film auteur. Say hello there, Jeremy, and tell the people where they can see your latest work, Tube Girl. <laughs> well, auteur, I think, uh, is perhaps uh, not the uh, appropriate word for a, a maker of B-films, but if you're interested, uh, search for Tube Girl and Goldcorn on YouTube or follow me on Facebook. It's somewhere on my Facebook page. But thanks, Kaiser. Yeah, definitely check it out if for no other reason than to see Jeremy act in a very ominous Afrikaans-accented English. Uh, so, Jeremy, what is 16 plus 1? 17. And I would have said the same thing until very recently. Luckily, I've had a crash course in the last couple of days in Chinese geopolitical mathematics and uh, would offer a very different answer now to what 16 plus 1 means. In all the media frenzy in the weeks just before the U.S. presidential election, China quietly advanced a relatively recent initiative that it calls 16 plus 1, referring to 16 countries in Central and Eastern Europe plus, of course, China. So it held a summit in Riga, Latvia, attended by Premier Li Keqiang and uh, prime ministers or deputy prime ministers from 16 Eastern European member states that included just about every country except Russia, Belarus, and Croatia, which I guess recently dropped out, and Ukraine, which has recently applied. So Albania and all the former Yugoslav republics, you know, Serbia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Slovenia, Macedonia, Montenegro, and then Czech Republic and Slovakia, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, the three Baltic countries. And now I think, uh, like I said, Ukraine is applied now for membership. And uh, President Xi Jinping, who you know, the dark-suited Davos men recently anointed as the new standard bearer for economic globalization, actually visited three countries in the region, Serbia, Poland, Czech Republic, on two trips in 2016. So what's all this for? What does China actually hope to achieve? How have Chinese overtures been received by governments of Central Eastern Europe, many of which, like Poland and the Czech Republic, actually had until recently real difficulties in their relations with China? And how have the two powers flanking Central Eastern Europe, Russia to the east and the EU to the west, reacted to China's creation of the 16 plus one? So to talk about this and much more, we are joined today by Martin Halla, an old friend I first met in his native Prague back in 2002. Martin is a sinologist who heads a project called Media. See what he did there? Media, very clever, uh, which pushes the very noble goal of summoning academics out from their ivory towers and equipping them with the skills they need to better share their research and their insights with the media. And uh, 
through the media to a broader audience. So Acromedia actually has partnered with the Institute for East Asian Studies at Charles University in Prague to create something called Synopsis, which is another kind of very clever name that I'm very jealous of. Jeremy, why didn't we come up with that one? <laughs> well, anyway, it's, it's an initiative. Synopsis is an initiative aimed at broadening knowledge of China for Czech audiences with synopses, of course, of China-related news from around the world, sort of like sub-China, but in Czech. So, Martin, wonderful to have you here in North Carolina. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Martin, let's talk first about the work you're doing, because it really relates to the topic that we'll be talking about today. What prompted you to start Acamedia and Synopsis? Well, I have uh, I have always been concerned about the gap um, uh, the gap between the, the the knowledge that is produced in the academic sphere and uh, the public discourse. So um, I've I've always uh, worried that uh, very little of the of the knowledge that actually is produced in uh, in various think tanks, universities, very little of that percolates all the way down to the public. So I I, I just thought that I should try and um, change that a little bit. And of course, China is a very good topic for such an effort uh, in Eastern Europe and specifically in the Czech Republic because we have had this rather spectacular U-turn in uh, the foreign policy of the Czech Republic lately, uh, a reorientation towards China. Uh, so China, out, out of sudden, uh, became one of the one of the focuses of of the public discourse in the Czech Republic. China was largely non-existent in uh, in uh, public affairs in the Czech Republic until recently, and that changed very abruptly. Um, and I thought the public was not properly prepared for this change. Uh, there was an there was an uh, information gap that needed to be filled. So uh, I applied the notion of bringing this um, this uh, you know teasing out the academic knowledge uh, um, out from the ivory tower and and bringing it to the masses, so to speak. So, so give me a better sense about the actual state of knowledge about China in the Czech Republic and across the region more broadly. I mean, you surprised me yesterday when you spoke kind of glowingly about how Americans seem to have significant engagement and knowledge about China, which suggests to me that <laughs> maybe it's not so great in your part of the world. Uh, wasn't the Czech school of China studies rather famous in its day? I mean, v- very famous. We, we, have a, we have a very um, very strong tradition in Chinese studies in, in the Czech Republic ever since the, or, or f- formerly Czechoslovakia, ever since the 50s. And um, you know right. there, was a, there was a whole generation of uh, Czech sinologists who who uh, spent um, uh, prolonged time studying in China uh, in the 50s, in, in the early 60s, exactly at the time when China itself, the Chinese mainland, was uh, inaccessible to, to Western scholars. So, uh, you know, there was a time when we actually had a... The advantage. Uh, yeah, we had an edge over, over Western scholarship of, uh, on China. And, and th- this, this, this tradition is still there. So the, the academic knowledge of China in the Czech Republic, I think... Thing, you know, if I may say so myself, being also um, an <laughs> being, academic, a, yeah, being, being also a Czech academic, is is quite strong. The the problem is um, that it doesn't really get out to the to the public discourse. So there is this this huge barrier between the academics and 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 the public. Um, so thus, academia and synopsis. Right. Exactly. 
Before we plunge into discussion of China's initiatives in Eastern Europe, perhaps we should set the stage here a bit and talk about the state of China's relations with the countries of Central and Eastern Europe broadly in the period following the Velvet Revolutions and the collapse a couple of years later of Soviet communism. Yeah, there is this uh, symbolic date, right? June 4th. Um, uh, everybody knows what happened in China on June 4th. No, nothing happened in Tiananmen Square. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. So exactly at that time when nothing was happening on Tiananmen Square, uh, the Poles were having their first uh, free or semi-free elections since uh, since World War II, basically, which was the beginning of these spectacular changes in Eastern Europe in 1989. So we went on diametrically opposing trajectories after 1989. So, you know, in the in the beginning, China was, uh, was uh, for, for most people in Eastern Europe, was an example of the alternative fate that might have uh, befallen, befallen Eastern Europe uh, if if it were not uh, resolved peacefully as it was uh, in in 1989 in Eastern Europe. So the, the, the current U-turn in the relationship between Eastern Europe and China is actually quite surprising, you know, given this historical baggage. Uh, you, you talked to me a little bit about what happened just last week with Charter 77's 40th anniversary. Charter 77, of course, was uh, the movement of kind of Prague-based young intellectuals calling for basically rule of law, right? I mean, it, it had a lot in common with the sort of constitutional movement of 2013 in, in China. Right. Uh, but uh, apparently there were a number of signatories to it, you know, 40 years ago, who called for the Czech government, am I correct, to recognize or to... To, to abide, by, to its abide own, by its own laws, basically. Right, right. Uh, but I mean, I'm, I'm, so some of the signatories called on the Czech government to call for the release of Liu Xiaobo, the, the Nobel laureate, you know, who is still imprisoned in China, uh, and to sort of honor the uh, legacy of Charter 08, of which he was a signat- signatory, you know, and the, probably the, the the man who's principally responsible for writing it, which he took direct influence. I mean, uh, direct inspiration from from Charter 77. Yes, yes. That's that's an interesting development that sort of illustrates the uh, inner court contradictions of the current approach of uh, East Europeans and and in particular the Czech government government towards towards China. It happens that this month is is the 40th anniversary of the Charter 77 movement. And on the occasion, the Czech government made a statement that recognized the legacy of um, Portrayed as part of, of of our of of our political tradition, so to speak. Yet at the, yet at the same time, they're 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 uh, silent on uh, uh, Charter 08. So uh, so a number of uh, signatories from the original Charter 77, about 160 of them, uh, signed a, an open letter to the Prime Minister asking him to publicly recognize the uh, the, the the role of Charter 08 as well, and and. Uh, and do something from for Liu Xiaopo, whatever whatever can has, be done has for him. Has Sobotka actually responded to that? He he hasn't. So I, you know, it's, it's very likely won't. Right? <laughs> it's mean. very likely that he's just going to ignore it. It's just, it, you know, it's just a it's just a it's it's just a very uh, interesting sign of of these contradictions uh, in the attitude of uh, of of uh, some of the East European governments towards China. Yeah. So, yeah, so let's talk about the U-turn that you spoke of, at least in the Czech government's attitude towards China. This has been 
a, a real change in, in attitude. When did this start and what prompted it? Well, it, it officially started in uh, 2014 during the, the visit of the Czech foreign minister in Beijing where he, uh, where he signed a joint declaration that had a markedly different language from, from, be- from before. So that was the, the the visible official start of this uh, of this U-turn. But of course, the process started much earlier with some uh, commercial interest uh, uh, um, getting into China and uh, you know lob- lobbying for for political support. So the the process itself was was, was much uh, much longer. But the the official start we can say was 2014. Ah, um, but I, I can't help but notice parallels. I mean, so you you know you were talking just now about uh, the Charter 77 anniversary in Czechia. Uh, I can't help but notice that, so you know, you, you have a, an American populist president who uh, anyone who hasn't been living in a cave for the last year knows has been pushing a kind of U-turn with Russia. And this has pushed a lot of American opponents of Trump into sort of more Russophobic or at least, uh, you know, anti-Putin uh, stances. Is this happening also as a result of this this embrace of China amongst a progressive intellectuals in, in very 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 much so because there's a, there's been a there's been a, a backlash against this policy in mm. the Czech Republic among uh, ex- exactly this group that you mentioned among uh, what you would call progressive intellectuals here in the United States so the whole discourse is is uh, becoming increasingly polarized and uh, this is one of the things that worries me that. China is going to get a bad name. I mean, not, not only for you know, not, not only in those things where where they deserve uh, criticism, but uh, but in general, in general, uh, a more attitude. broad brush, yeah, sort of, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's going to be a you know a lasting legacy of sort of negative feelings uh, towards um, China, which I think would be a very unfortunate outcome. Are you seeing this happening in other countries in the region? Progressive intellectuals who are really uncomfortable with this embrace of China? Yes, it's uh, it's part of the overall polarization. So, you know, we have had uh, a number of uh, populist politicians coming to power across uh, Eastern Europe. Some of them have uh, gained uh, international repute, like, like Prime Minister Orban in Hungary. And again, you know, the, 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 the public discourse polarizes and people sort of take, you know, ever more, maybe not extreme, but uh, pronounced uh, positions. Yeah. Um, Viktor Orban, who you just mentioned, the Hungarian prime minister, he's probably the head of the best known populist movement in the whole region. He's spoken recently about actually, if I'm not mistaken, he's spoken recently about actually emulating Chinese and Singaporean models of development. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yes, <clears throat> yes, he did. He's, uh, you know, he's very, he's very out, outspoken. He's sort of taken, he's taken this philosophical or I should put this into uh, you know into quotes. This 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 would be philosophical approach to uh, this whole populist revolution or whatever you call it. So he proudly calls himself um, uh, you know an Ill- illiberal democrat, um, and um, you know he uses that term uh, in, in a positive sense that this is the this is this is actually the the, the future of democracy. This is how, how this is the real democracy. Oh yeah. Right. Martin, what does China actually want? Is this a way to wrest influence out of the hands of the EU, or is it just a trade and investment play? Um, and has there been any actual political gain from this? Well, I would, I would see this as, uh, as a part of a larger 
process uh, phenomenon that somebody quite aptly called Chinese Great Leap Outward, mm-hmm. uh, a projection of, uh, of China's influence, uh, not only beyond its uh, borders, but beyond uh, the traditional regions where, where uh, China's influence used to be felt. So now, it's, uh, now it actually goes much further. Uh, we have seen the beginning of this process with the, uh, uh, with the establishment of the Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization uh, in, in the early 2000s which brought uh, Chinese interests, both economic and political, to Central Asia, basically. Then, uh, as a next step, I think uh, there was this formal cooperation that was established between the New Silk Road Initiative and the Eurasian Economic Union in 2015. The Eurasian Economic Union probably is probably not very well known in the United States, but it's it's basically Russia's attempt to revive some of the glory of, uh, of the old uh, Soviet Union. So it's a, it's a, it's a regional grouping of uh, Russia, of course, and uh, some of its, uh, uh, most of its former republics, especially in, the, in, in Central Asia, but also uh, in Eastern Europe. So in 2015, um, there, there was a formal treaty of cooperation between these two initiatives, between the Eurasian Economic Union and uh, New Silk Road, signed in Moscow. And I see the the um, 16 plus one initiative as being uh, the logical next step, bringing uh, this whole process further west, and of course becoming sort of a sort of a bridge uh, uh, between the what is sometimes called the Eurasian integration process, the uh, you know the closer partnership uh, between uh, the post-Soviet uh, space and China, bringing it closer to Europe itself. So we've talked about warming relations between Czechia and Beijing, between Hungary and Beijing. Serbia, too, right? That's another country where we've seen sort of tangible political gain by China. Yes, yes. It's, um, Serbia is an interesting case, I think. You know, the 16 plus 1, one of the remarkable things about this uh, regional grouping is that uh, it combines states who are... EU members with uh, non-EU members. So out of the 16, I think 11 are uh, members of the European Union, but uh, there's five more countries that are not particularly in the, in the, in the, in the Balkans. In the Balkans, right. Yes. And uh, in, in this group uh, of the five non-members um, within the uh, 16 plus one uh, grouping, uh, Serbia is probably the most striking case of uh, growing Chinese influence, which is which is interesting because you know in recent years, I think the outside world thought of Serbia as being more like in the you know in the pro-Russian camp. Right. But now it's increasingly f- uh, supporting some some of the Chinese positions. Like quite interestingly, they they expressed during Xi Jinping's visit in the country last year, they s- they expressed support for the for the Chinese position on the ch- on the South China Sea shortly after the 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 verdict in the Hague. Huh. And uh, you know, uh, if you look at the map, the, it's it's a landlocked country with with no obvious maritime <laughs> interest. So it was a, it was a striking statement. Right. These are the kind of friends that China really wants, though. Yeah. So Martin, maybe you could give our our, our readers a sense of the relative strengths and weaknesses of the different major outside players to Central and Eastern Europe. That is, the European Union, uh, the. Russians, of course, and the newcomer to this, the Chinese. Yes. So 
the uh, you know the image uh, of the European Union um, unfortunately has has suffered quite a bit um, in in the past few years and again the, the the main culprit here would be the migration crisis so again in the popular popular mind in the Czech Republic and all over Eastern Europe and, and probably all over Europe the EU Uh, hasn't really handled that well that's an understatement it hasn't handled well the crisis it's uh, you know a lot of people tend to think that it's actually been quite a quite a huge failure right the hungarians certainly think so yeah. yes yes but all of, all around you know people have this opinion and like i like i like i said they you know they, there's this instinctive fear subliminal fear so uh, it it really drives the anti eu attitudes of 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 people on the continent Now about uh, Russia and China, um, that's interesting because they they seem to be in exactly opposite positions vis-à-vis the, the, the outlooks of the population mm. in these countries. Because Russia, uh, of course, invites strong responses in certain generation, in my generation, the generation that has seen the Russian tanks on the streets of, uh, let's say, Prague, right? In '68, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of baggage that uh, that comes uh, with with Russia, but at the same time, Russia of course enjoys these uh, wide networks from exactly those days when there were beneficiaries of uh, of the you know of, of the regime china on the other hand is uh, in exactly uh, the opposite situation because it doesn't have this baggage uh, it doesn't have any negative connotations uh, coming with it long term Except for maybe except for 89, man, yeah, 89. except for 89. But you know, 89 happened in China. It didn't happen in Eastern Europe, right? right? right. So it's uh, it's something different. The tanks were yeah, the in tanks, China, China exactly, Boulevard and exactly. So it it doesn't it doesn't affect people so 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 intimately, right? Uh, but it doesn't have the networks either. Exactly, it doesn't have the, the networks, right? So, so in you know, it's it's in exactly uh, the opposite situation. But it's also you know the the relative position. Uh, positions of these two powers is actually uh, very complementary when you think about it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, it seems to me that they realize it, and it's uh, that's one of the factors that is driving the the looming cooperation between these two powers. And it's, it's certainly not a zero sum you know mentality on it, right? Not there, not there. No. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that this will have good and and and, and bad effects in in Eastern Europe, and I I, I think that. They're certainly the critics of this are certainly right to to be treating it in a very circumspect manner. There's a lot that could go terribly, terribly wrong here. With two a lot of increasingly un- authoritarian, illiberal states now wielding increasing influence as EU's uh, influence wanes, and as the U.S. has clearly no intention of of, of getting involved. Sounds like a recipe for trouble, doesn't it? It does. So you told me yesterday about the apparent successes uh, on the part of one Chinese company uh, in your country in in Czechia, uh, China Huaxin Energy Company and uh, Energy Corporation or something like that. Uh, its young chairman, this guy named Ye Jianming, uh, Andrew Chubb, and John Garneau, who has been on our show before, uh, wrote about this guy recently, and uh, we will link to that. But There wasn't too much about this mysterious Czech connection. What's going on? Whose ear does he apparently have now? Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting company and very interesting process. Um, uh, the the, uh, the company CEFC Huasin spearheaded the this U-turn in uh, Czech-China relations from the Chinese side. So 
it uh, came to the Czech Republic in 2015. It, uh, it made a series of uh, high-profile acquisitions uh, or investment, depending, investments depending on how you look at it. In what sectors? It was mostly prime real estate. Right. Uh, there were some media, uh, a, a large media group. Well, it's uh, supposedly an energy company. It's supposedly an energy company, but there's not much energy to, right. you know, energy resources to speak of in the Czech Republic. So, uh, hydroelectric. Well, there's, uh, you know, there's the, the Czech government believes in, in um, atomic energy. So that's, uh, okay. but that's not exactly the field of uh, operation for CFC. And they also gained, they also acquired um, a football club. <laughs> it was quite interesting, you know. Um, anyhow, so they they made uh, they made some acquisitions, but the the overall volume of uh, investment was was relatively low compared to the you know overall volume of uh, of the FDA in the Czech Republic it was about it was below one percent. But the political influence that came with this process is quite remarkable because people who are associated with the company or who are employees of the company in some cases are actually have become advisors to some of the top constitutional positions in, in, in the Czech Republic. So there's a, the chairman of the company, uh, Mr. Yetianming himself, was named uh, a special advisor to the president, uh, to uh, President Zeman. But uh, other people also act, uh, you know, in other um, uh, high offices of the Czech government uh, as advisors. Is this normal for them to appoint uh, foreign representatives of, of a corporation as official advisors? I see it uh, as highly unusual. Of course, they, they, ref, uh, uh, they refer to uh, uh, Jack Ma and uh, you know, his, his official position in, 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 in uh, Cameron's cabinet as, a, as an advisor. Uh, but of course, in, in the Czech Republic, it's not just one person. There's a, there's a number of these people in, in various positions, ad- advisory pos- positions. Uh, there's also been a lot of personnel overlap. So people from the presidential office uh, ended up in the in the Czech office of the CEFC, and then they go back to the presidential office. So it's I think it's quite unusual, in my opinion. What, what is going on here? What do you really think? Do you, do you think that this approaches the level of elite capture? Well, you might possibly think of that in those terms. To me, it shows that there's more happening in in the realm of political influence than po- political influence than in the realm of actual economic economic cooperation or investment. Does this in some sense mirror what's been happening with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization on Russia's other flank? Yes, uh, that's an uh, obvious analogy when you when you think about it because uh, you know in uh, in Central Asia there's there's uh, an apparent accommodation between these two powers between Russia and uh, and China. There's a, there's a volume of literature describing specific forms of this cooperation. And I see something similar looming out in, in Eastern Europe, actually, even though uh, we do not have uh, specific documents to point to like, uh, like, we, like we do have in, in, in Central Asia. But in both cases, China is coming to what used to be considered as Russian backyard or the traditional sphere of influence or whatever you would call it. So, uh, you know, normally you would expect a bit of a conflict between the two powers, but it seems that that's not happening and uh, uh, quite the opposite, that there's, uh, there's a level of uh, accommodation or, or even cooperation and coordination. As Kaiser hinted at in the introduction to this podcast, one has to wonder how Russia regards all of this activity in its traditional backyard and in its front yard too, with both 16 plus one and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization 
What are Russia's strategic considerations here? Well, after the sanctions in uh, in the aftermath of the of the of the takeover of Crimea by by Russia, Russia has turned uh, towards China in a very obvious way. And I think it's trying to figure out how how best to work with its uh, new ally, because I think there's uh, you know some of the deep interests are actually quite contradictory between these two powers. That uh, you know Russia being a very top-down society uh, with uh, uh, President Putin pretty much deciding everything, the, uh, the the potential conflict in some of the the interests between Russia and China is being de-emphasized. So right now all eyes are on cooperation with uh, China. That's that's what's being what's being promoted in Russia. Uh, and I think the the looming cooperation between these two powers in, in Eastern Europe is part of that process. Mm. So the traditional fear in the region has been more concerned with Russia, which contrasts with the U.S. right now, where the administration clearly sees China as the greater threat. So how has this impacted the dynamic with these new populist governments, their relationship with Russia? I, I can I can probably only describe this in the case of the Czech Republic. So in, in the case of the Czech Republic, the government uh, seems to be uh, divided on the issue of Russia. So there's ministers, there are ministers, there are some voices inside the government who openly express uh, concern about um, uh, Russian influence in Eastern Europe and, and in the Czech Republic. But uh, as regards China, the, uh, the the current Czech government mostly uh, supports the the attitude of the of the, of the presidential office, which is um, unconditionally positive towards uh, China. There's only just one or two ministers who have expressed some concerns, but uh, basically the, the the majority opinion in uh, in the government seems to go in uh, in line with the uh, with the office of the president in being very supportive of this huge and in the Czech foreign policy. So this initiative actually dates back to 2012. That's when 16 plus 1 was founded. Correct. Uh, but it seems to me that, that there's been kind of a, a, a real ramp up just in 2016. Uh, is that a correct reading? Uh, I think it's been a gradual build up. So I'm, mm-hmm. I don't know if we can, we can um, point to 2016 in particular. I think it's been really building up uh, over, the, over the past few years. And it's, um, you can probably say that it's the, the process has been accelerating. Right. But I, I wonder, though, whether they're banking on the continued hold on power of these populist movements. I mean, today, as we were driving over here, we saw that Austria... Uh, which is, you know, arguably part of the region. It's Central Europe, certainly, has elected a Green Party president uh, who is a has the, the support of the center-right as well as the center-left, describes himself as a progressive central, center-left uh, politician. Uh, you know, are, are, is China maybe premature in banking on the continued rollout of populism in, in, in the region, and don't they see the inherent contradiction between a populist governments that, that tend to, to be more economically protectionist and their own kind of uh, goals for economic relationships in the, in the region? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's, it seems to me that the, the, the Austrian election of, of, the, of the Green president is a bit of bit of an outlier, uh, you know, that... that uh, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it seems to be going against the trend that we've seen in, in not only in Eastern Europe, but in all of Europe lately. I, I, hope, I hope it will become 
uh, you know, this, this outlying position will become more, more common. But that's not what, what we've been seeing recently. The populist governments in, in uh, Eastern Europe are not necessarily bending towards, um, towards protectionism economically. So, ah, interesting. You know, it's 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 a rough parallel of what you what you guys have here in the United States, but not not quite. I mean, there yeah, are some perfect. some some striking differences as well. Maybe you could help help me understand what some of those differences are. I mean, I know that you know the immigration issue is is probably much more, especially the refugee issue, right. is much more front and center. Yes, the 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 the, the refugee issue is, is like the the elephant in the room in in in, um, in most of Eastern Europe, actually in all all of Europe, I would say, but in in particular in Eastern Europe, and it's of course ironic because the you know there some countries have seen uh, an influx of uh, of refugees like like Hungary, which mm, is uh, yeah, which is a front frontline state in this in this sense, but in the Czech Republic uh, there are hardly any refugees. You know, we how have, how 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 few are we talking? Well, I've seen some statistics um, that last year it was about 120 people applied. 120 people applied officially for for the status of, of a refugee. <laughs> out of these 120, about 60 were from China, <laughs> so they were not even coming from from Syria. But in popular imagination, this is a huge issue, right? And and it's it's probably even magnified by the fact that uh, there are no refugees, so people have no 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 real contact or real <laughs> real understanding of, of of who these people are. So in the popular mind, uh, you know, all they see is the is the propaganda of the Islamic State with uh, beheadings, and uh, you know, they 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 see the the, the um, reports from um, the, the attacks in the Christmas Paris. market in Berlin, yeah, 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 and, Berlin yeah. and and Brussels, Brussels and Brussels, all that. So there is this uh, subliminal fear that is driving the the quote unquote populist revolution in this part of the world, and I think it's it's often underestimated how strong an influence the the refugee crisis has on the on the discourse in 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 eastern europe and in in in, in, in all of europe really so far uh, outbound foreign direct investment from uh, china which is really ramping up has been focused on western europe on north america to a lesser extent on developing nations in the global south and in, in in are we seeing pronounced increases in foreign direct investment from China in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe recently? Uh, not not really. Uh, it, there, there's certainly been some high-profile uh, acquisitions and, and even some investments in, in Eastern Europe. But in the uh, macroeconomic comparison, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's nothing that would, that would be of... Um, of uh, uh, Real significance and substance, you know. So the 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 hype that comes with this uh, with these acquisitions or investments is is much bigger than than the uh, than the than the money flows and the capital flows. And the, the 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 real numbers just do not add up to to support the uh, the hype that comes with it. And it's it's interesting because the and, and here we again come back to the relative uh, lack of deeper understanding in the public discourse of uh, of uh, contemporary China. There are these expectations again that are not based on uh, economic calculations or or a deeper analysis. But there is this expectation that huge riches are coming with the Chinese <laughs> to Eastern Europe. It's uh, sometimes takes quite ridiculous forms you know it's 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 like sheer greed 
um, uh, showing up in, in unexpected places. It's, it reminds me sometimes, you know, I, I, I studied popular art, um, Chinese popular art um, a long time ago. And in, in the Chinese popular art, you have these images, uh, you know, like in woodblock prints, for instance, of, of these uh, rich merchants coming along the Silk Road, bringing riches to China, you right. know. New Year's prints uh, is one of the one of the one of the uh, prevalent topics um, uh, depicted there, and now you have almost like a like an opposite image in the East European mind. You know of these of these rich uh, rich the merchants. Chinese Father Christmas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, and 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 companies like the CEFC epitomize it. You know, you have like this company that has you know these billions of dollars that can actually make people rich, right? So there, there, there are these expectations that, uh, of course, support the hype that comes with, uh, with, uh, with these investments, acquisitions, that are, in fact, in uh, actual numbers, not that significant. You're quite convinced that companies like CEFC are simply instruments of Chinese policy. Uh, I wouldn't uh, say it uh, quite like that, but I think there are signs that would seem to point in that direction. Let me let me phrase it this way. <laughs> okay. And uh, you know, there's there's a there's some literature on CFC uh, that is sometimes quoted in the Czech Republic that has uh, linked uh, the company to uh, the Chinese military and even specifically the Chinese uh, military intelligence. Uh, there's been a little bit of controversy about that in the Czech Republic. There have been some legal threats flying around. Um, <clears throat> Which you're speaking carefully about. Exactly. That's why I'm, that's I'm, that's I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm formulating my... Well, I won't try to get you in any trouble. <laughs> So uh, the but beyond that, you know, because I obviously I'm not in I'm in no position to say one way or another whether you know right. whether, whether this, the there really is a connection to I, I can only quote the literature that, that that is out there in the open open uh, in the public domain. Well, again, but, I mean, we'll link to the, that piece by John Garneau and, and yes, and, and right. Uh, but beyond that, you know, what I do see uh, happening is the is the behavior of the company. And uh, here again, I, I would uh, say that uh, to me, it seems that the political influence that the, that the company has been able to build in the Czech Republic in a, in a very, very short period of time outweighs the economic impact. So that's something that... Uh, is unusual and uh, obviously points in the direction that uh, this is not just a, your your everyday commercial subject. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, Martin Halla, once again, thank you for taking the time to chat with us and stick around and uh, make a rec- recommendation uh, for our listeners. Before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynic Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. If you like the Cynic Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store. I see that many of you have done so. And well, we're very, very grateful for that because it really helps people to find the show. And more than that, it means a lot to us. So, on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us? Um, Well, you know, Martin being Czech has made me think of uh, one of my favorite novels of all time, which is The Great Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera, which uh, I think I'll go and reread after this podcast. That's actually a great suggestion. I I haven't read it in quite a number of years. Okay, Martin, you're up. Yeah, I would, uh, you know, in in um, in connection with what the top 
with the topic that we have discussed today, I would uh, recommend two books that I think are quite enlightening uh, as, as, as further reading. One of them would be Charles Clover's, Charles Clover's book uh, on uh, Russia's nationalism or the deeper roots, the ideological roots of contemporary Russia's... Um, oh, right. Um, Black uh, wind, white snow. Right? Exactly. Black wind, uh, white snow, which is, which, is an, which is a remarkable book. And I think um, it, it, it's relevant to uh, what we have discussed about the, you know, the growing Chinese influence in, um, in uh, Central Asia and Eastern Europe. It's funny you should bring that up because I actually, I mean, Charles and I are friends. We knew each other in Beijing. He's now in Beijing with Financial Times. Right. Uh, and he, he's actually, we're going to interview him about this. We're going to talk to him about this book and about uh, nationalisms. Chinese and Russian similarities, differences, sort of a compare and contrast. Now that he's had exposure to both these countries, great. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that yeah, show. Yeah, be a really good show. Uh, I think the, one of the one of the aspects in which it's relevant to China is the um, you know is is is, um, is description of this process of Eurasian thinking. You know, the, mm-hmm. which which underlines uh, uh, the the current um, Russian nationalist mythology. Right, and and Charles goes back into the 19th century, early 20th century, more more into the period after the revolution. To exactly, and then exiles. And another interesting point is that um, the you know the roots of this uh, of this ideological movements uh, can actually be traced back to Prague because uh, you know uh-huh. many of these people were, were Russian emigres, white white Russian emigres in uh, living in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia and in particular in Prague. So that's 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 one item that I would recommend. And the other one uh, is uh, a recent report by ECFR, the um, European Council for Foreign Relations, uh, on the Eurasian integration, uh, which I think makes some, some, some interesting points. Okay, we'll have to make sure we will link to that on the podcast page. Uh, I'll make sure to check that out too, because this is something that I'm woefully undereducated on, uh, need to understand much better. Uh, so th- thanks, that's great. So my recommendation is this delightful little thing that my wife showed me this morning. Uh, on, it's in, an app that's on Weixin. It's called the Qingqi Jisuanqi, which means the, the relative calculator, uh, relations calculator, sort of family relations calculator. So what you do is it's got a little, you know, in, in lieu of numbers, it's got, you know, words like, you know, father, mother, sister, brother, older brother, young brother. And all, what you do is uh, you, you, you type one, and it starts, in, so you'll, like, my mother... And then you type the next one, brother. So my mother's, say, older brother's wife's, and then it, it'll it'll add, you know, uh, uh, like you know, it'll, so it'll be like, 我妈妈的哥哥的的老婆的孩子的儿子. It'll say something like that, and then then you hit equals, and it'll give you the the correct Chinese name for that very specific relation. And it's it's amazing. We were just cackling at just how complicated you can go. I wish I'd. I mean, um, I, unfortunately, this will land with people too late for use when they go to visit those those Chinese in laws uh, and and figure out the distant relations and how how they should address them. Uh, but it's an amazingly funny, creative little app that I, I hope everyone checks out. Uh, it's again, it's called the Qingxi Jisuanqi and San Weixin, and we'll put a link to it. So thanks again, Martin. That was really great and great hanging out with you here in North Carolina. I am sure that we will see each other uh, not in not too distant future, October in Prague, yeah? Uh, so I hope. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, all right. And thanks for having me. Thank you. 
The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks to Anla Cheng and to Sarai Durabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Cynica at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Cynical Podcast. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at Cynical Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.